Welcome to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now, over to Dr. Mancharamani. Hi, everyone. And thanks for tuning in to this ninth episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, I'll be sharing the audio portion of my webinar interview with Kishore Mabubani. Kishore is the former Singaporean ambassador to the United Nations and actually served as the president of the UN Security Council during the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the United States. So he's been in the hot seat, so to say, coordinating between the United States, China, Russia, and other members of the Security Council. Further, he's the author of several books, the most recent of which is called Has China Won? And so when U.S.-China tensions started to escalate, I could think of no one better to get on the phone and to speak with than Kishore. His new book is absolutely fabulous to anyone who really wants to understand the dynamics of this U.S.-China rivalry. It provides fabulous historical context. It analyzes strategic mistakes made by both the United States and by China. And I think it takes a fairly uh, interesting take on how this relationship may evolve. Let's just turn to the unedited audio of my interview with Kishore Mabubani. So thank you everyone for, uh, for dialing in or tuning in uh, to this webinar. Uh, I am absolutely thrilled today to have Kishore Mabubani uh, with me. Kishore is a veteran diplomat. Uh, he calls himself a student of philosophy. I might add that it's, he's a, uh, a well-trained uh, student of grand strategy as well, <laughs> uh, but he also, an experienced uh, diplomat that's uh, had many posts around the world, uh, including serving as the Singapore ambassador to the United Nations and president of the UN Security Council. He's written eight books, uh, including this most recent one, which is called Has China Won? Uh, The Chinese Challenge to American Primacy. Uh, So we're going to get into that. Before we begin, um, let me just remind everyone, this webinar series is intended to bring together the thoughts that I present in my forthcoming book, Think for Yourself. Um, Feel free to tweet, by the way, during this session about our topic of discussion. Um, And then I'm excited to announce that next week, uh, I'll be hosting Jim Grant. um, And Jim wants to talk about the Federal Reserve, and he's referring to uh, the United States as the United States of the Federal Reserve. And so uh, I'm excited to talk with him about the economy, uh, about the impact of central banking, and in particular, quantitative easing and distortions that that may be producing in asset markets and other areas. Uh, So that will be at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, So again, please uh, put that down on your calendar. The invitation will go out later today, if not tomorrow. And then we have the replays available not only for Tom Petrie, uh, where we talked about oil, global dynamics, geopolitics, and how they were affecting the oil markets, uh, but also uh, the conversation we had with General Lori Robinson, again, the most senior female in the U.S. military ever, four-star Air Force General, uh, former commander of NORAD and Northern Command. And then we began with, uh, as you might all remember, Dr. Ali Khan, Uh, his replays also continues to be available, might need to be updated as we start to get more information about the pandemic. And Dr. Khan has offered to come back uh, after a couple of weeks, so we may actually do that. So let's now turn to the topic at hand, which is uh, Kishore's book, uh, Has China Won? 
So Kishore, thank you for joining me. I know it's in the evening there in Singapore, so really appreciate you taking the time uh, to join. Um, and uh, I'm excited to uh, talk about US-China relations with you. So Kishore, let's begin with a simple, uh, simple question, uh, which is, why'd you write this book? Well, you know, I consider myself, even though I live in Singapore, uh, as a friend of America, I've lived in the uh, United States for about 13 years or so. Uh, I also consider myself a friend of China, uh, which is not too far from Singapore. And what I can see very clearly, that in the next 10 to 20 years, a major global tragedy is about to unfold uh, in the form of uh, really one of the biggest geopolitical contests ever uh, between the United States and China. And I believe that this geopolitical contest, which is paradoxically, as I say in my book, is inevitable, but also avoidable. So the goal of my book as a friend of the United States and a friend of China is, is what I'm saying to both of them is, please step back a little while think about the larger consequences of what you're doing think about what you're doing will it help the american people will it help the chinese people and my answer is no and so that's why i wrote this book now in an effort to prevent a major tragedy from unfolding yeah yeah wonderful uh well kishore one of the things that i find fascinating as an american and i appreciate you taking the perspective of a friend of america uh, is there is very little that we can dis that we agree upon here the democrats say left the republicans say right the republicans say up the democrats say down we have trouble agreeing on virtually anything with one exception china we have consensus here. It seems to be a bipartisan issue that China is a threat to the American way of life. They're a threat economically. They're unfair trade practice. You've heard the story. So why is that? Well, I think if any future historian looking back at our time and asked uh, himself or herself, why did this great geopolitical contest break out? he would have also seen the inevitability of it very clearly. And there are major, what, what my book does is to describe the structural forces that are driving these two nations uh, towards this contest. And let's say in the case of the United States, uh, I will mention three. Number one, this has been a, a, a sort of iron law geopolitics that goes back thousands of years. Whenever the world's number one emerging power, which today is China, is about to overtake the world's number one power, which today is the United States. There is rising level of tensions between the two, and there's almost no exceptions uh, uh, to this rule if one can think of. So that, that's the major driving force. But you see, if this was a contest between two Western powers, it could be maybe in one way or another managed. But the other big shift that is happening in, in the world is that this is the first time in 200 years that a non-Western power uh, is going to become the number one power. And of course, that plays into lots of emotions. And one of the most sensitive subjects that I raise in my book that is that's often not politically correct to discuss is that in the Western psyche, there has been buried for centuries a fear of the yellow peril. 
and here suddenly your nightmare is coming true because the number one power in the world is going to be a yellow power. And of course that conjures up nightmares. And so I emphasize that much of the forces that are driving this Jopadikonte contest, some are rational, but some are emotional. And then a third force that makes it even more complicated is that Americans believe, and, and of course for good reason, that democracies are essentially better societies, virtuous societies, and that communist regimes are almost by definition evil regimes, they oppress their people. And in any case, the America never worried about communist regimes because, hey, communism would always fail. Only democracies succeed, communist parties fail. And instead, what the Chinese Communist Party has delivered in the last 40 years is the greatest improvement in the living standards of the Chinese people, the greatest improvement that they have seen in 4,000 years. Yeah. And it's being driven by Communist Party. So that's another dimension that adds to the suspicion and anger within sure. the two sides. So you can see that, that it's a multi-dimensional thing sure. that is playing out here. Yeah, so Kishore, one thing I want to uh, raise, and I, I, I'm going to bring it to your book also. Um, when I was in college, the most favored nation trading status debate was the issue on U.S.-China relations. I remember working at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, and when the president of Taiwan came to Cornell for his reunion, uh, there was an uproar in Beijing. That's how could American politicians meet them, etc. Most favored nation trading status was the other issue, Taiwan and MFN. And I remember distinctly, while working at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, the president of Boeing Asia coming in to the, defend the Chinese, to help lobby on their behalf. Today, the U.S. business interest doesn't seem to be pro-China the way they once were. I know you describe that in your book as one of China's real strategic mistakes. Tell us a little more about that. Oh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, you know, the, the, the impulse to stand up to China uh, has, I think, been a constant feature uh, within the American body politic and certainly within what you might call either euphemistically or otherwise the deep state. And whenever there was such an impulse to go after China, it was the American business community would always say, oh, with good reason, stop, stop, stop. You know, uh, this is our biggest market. And for Boeing, by the way, China is still, if I'm not mistaken, the number one market. Uh, and uh, General Motors is making more money in, I think, China than in the U.S. So there's obviously good reasons to stop this geopolitical contest. But what's interesting is that this time around, when President Trump launched his trade war in 2017, 2018, what you should have seen is the American business community saying, stop, stop, stop. Instead, everybody kept quiet. And that showed how much the Chinese had alienated uh, the American business community. And I, of course, discussed why it happened in my book and what a tragic mistake it was uh, on the part of the Chinese to do that. Sure. Flipping sides, you then talk about one of the U.S. mistakes, uh, which I think is a gigantic issue that I do want to dive into a little bit with you here, uh, which uh, has to do with the use of the dollar. And uh, the dollar weaponization, I think, is how you describe it. Mm -hmm. De facto, the American dollar is the world's only reserve currency. 
And that gives America a great deal of flexibility on a lot of topics that have geopolitical impact. Um, talk to me a little bit more, at least for those that haven't read the book, maybe an appetizer size portion, if you will, of how this is actually potentially in the long run counter to US interests. Yes, uh, as you know, the, I make the dollar argument as part of a much larger point, which is that the biggest strategic mistake that United States has made in launching this geopolitical contest with China is that it has launched it without first working out a comprehensive long-term strategy. And as I said, this insight was given to me by Henry Kissinger at a one-on-one -on -one lunch I had with him in New York in March uh, 2018. But what reflects the lack of strategy is the way that the United States has been using the US dollar. And the US dollar has become by far the most powerful weapon that the US can use against uh, other countries. I mean, forget aircraft carriers, they cost a lot of money and they do nothing. Actually, it's the US dollar, when the US uses this as a weapon, countries get really, really crippled as we've seen in the case of uh, Iran. But in so doing, the United States is in a sense, and this is as a friend of the United States saying, that it is creating a problem for the rest of the world because the US dollar was a very useful tool to use for everything. And suddenly the US dollar has become a razor blade in their hands. It can cut outside, but it also cuts their fingers. Because it now becomes a problem. For, and, and, and I want to emphasize that this razor blade has cut the fingers of your friends and allies like France, like UK, I, I forget which French bank paid a $9 billion fine to the United States. Yeah. And, and, and why did that happen? Because the United States said, and, and to put it, and it, it's a very complicated issue, but if I have to try to explain it very, very simply. The United States uh, is basically using the dollar to have extra territorial application of American domestic laws overseas. So when a French bank uses uh, trades with Iran and buys and it doesn't violate any French laws, it doesn't violate any Iranian laws, but they have to settle with the US dollar and the settlement process has to go to a New York bank. And when it goes to a New York bank and goes to Iran, it violates an American law. And because it violates an American law, the French bank is fine. And what, what I say is that what's unwise about this, let me emphasize, the reason why it's unwise is that it was actually a very famous uh, French minister who became the president, Giscard d'Estaing, who said that with the, with the US dollar being the global reserve currency, America gets an exorbitant privilege. And that's absolutely true. Because just look at, let's look at trade with China. The Chinese have, people have to work very hard to manufacture products, hours and hours of sweat, they produce a product and they send to America. Let them, all that America has to do if he wants to is print money and send <laughs> printed paper back to China. Now that's a great privilege that many countries would love to have. And it enables, as I quote, as I quote several economists saying, that when the dollar is a global reserve currency, America can live beyond its means. So if you're enjoying this exorbitant privilege, why jeopardize it? Sure. Why jeopardize it? So again, I'm saying this is not in America's national interest to do so. You know, yeah. and that's my point.
Yeah. No, so Kishore, I, I don't know if you've seen, but this week's uh, The Economist magazine that's just coming out right now, hitting the newsstands in the United States tomorrow, uh, has a special report on international banking and the attempts predominantly through the Chinese-led ecosystem, if you will, to develop alternative banking mechanisms. Mm. What do you think the future of that looks like? Well, I think the, this, as I say in my book, the big danger about the weaponization of the US dollar is that it has now created a global incentive among all the 192 other countries in the world, by the way, including friends and allies of the United States, they do not want to be held hostage uh, by the US dollar. And so they want to look for alternatives. And in the past, frankly, be very, very difficult. And, and any good economist can tell you it's because the US dollar market is so deep and so fluid that nobody can create it uh, immediately. By the same time, now that you've created this enormous incentive for China, it is clearly technically possible for China which is so advanced in artificial intelligence and other such areas to create digital currency like the Bitcoin. Now, though you cannot rely on the Bitcoin because it can be hijacked and taken away by somebody and so on and so forth. But if you have a digital currency that's protected by the Central Bank of China, that could conceivably be a more efficient instrument to facilitate international trade without having to use the US dollar and be subject to American laws. And I, I don't see it happening, by the way, anytime soon. Sure. But when you create this kind of incentive, and if that happens, and if the US, and as I say in my book, that you know the US dollar could very well prove to be the Achilles heel uh, of the American economy and could actually end up in a situation if you lose your reserve currency status, then the standard of living of American people will drop significantly. Sure, sure. Well, it's a, it's a thought that I know is on the minds of many uh, economists here in the United States that are paying close attention. So uh, it's, it's definitely an important topic we'll have to pay close attention to. Um, so, uh, Kishore, I want to turn now to current events um, and some of the dynamics that are transpiring specifically around the COVID uh, outbreak and the politicization of that process. Uh, and I know I've received some questions from people that have emailed me questions about this, uh, but I'm a, I wanna also actually encourage everyone listening, please feel free to contribute your questions through the Q&A tab uh, at the bottom of your window here. So as you find you have questions, please submit them there. But we know that even this week, Kishore, mm -hmm. that uh, Secretary uh, Pompeo accused uh, or suggested that he had evidence that this virus emerged from a lab. It's resulted in name calling on both sides. Uh, it's resulted in accusations being thrown back and forth. I'm curious on a couple different fronts if you could comment. Number one, where do you think this geopolitical positioning really leads itself? At some point, um, you know, there will either be an investigation into what happened. In fact, even the Australians who I would have thought would have quietly sat there uh, and not interjected themselves, have interjected themselves to suggest that an, 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 an investigation should take place. Um, but there is also the history of the United States um, sort of 
positioning uh, with Iraq and the accusation of WMD in certain areas, where evidence perhaps was also suspect. So I'm curious if you can comment on the, the politics of what may be happening geopolitically around the COVID uh, outbreak and the desire for an understanding of where it came from, as well as how the history of the w WMD in Iraq and the evidence and they're not being WMD uh, plays into this calculus on both sides. Well, uh, I must say that uh, this is what makes the US-China geopolitical contest even more tragic uh, is the fact that it normally, by the way, one of the oldest laws of geopolitics is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> Right? That's the oldest rule of geopolitics. Now, if the United States thinks that China is the, uh, if COVID-19 is the enemy, and, and, and the enemy of COVID-19 is China, China and the United States should come together, at least even temporarily, and fight the common enemy, which is COVID-19, which would have been the sensible thing to do, which is what basically the whole world was hoping would happen uh, as a result of COVID-19. So when the geopolitical contest not just carried on, but deepened in the midst of the biggest crisis we have seen probably in a hundred years, it really sort of unfortunately it proved the uh, correctness of my thesis that this US-China geopolitical contest is being driven by very, very deep forces. And here, uh, sadly, um, one would also hope that people would turn to reason and facts uh, to analyze uh, the situation. Of, of course, unfortunately, and I know it's very easy to do this, partly because of what I said is a yellow peril. There's a lot of blaming of China uh, for COVID-19. And here, I just want to just read to you a few sentences from the editor of the Lancet magazine. It's one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world. His name is Richard Horton. And this is what Richard Horton says. He says, the reason why I've been very critical of the UK government, the US administration, and many European countries is because the Lancet published five papers in the last week of January. Now, I must emphasize this, last week of January. Mm -hmm. He said, these five papers said a new virus has emerged. It is deadly. It is related to SARS. It is killing people. Patients are being admitted to ICUs. The, the, there's no treatment for this virus. There's person-to-person there's, there's -person transmission. You need personal protection equipment. You need testing. Or oh, he said every warning that had to be given was given in the end of January. Sadly, these warnings were not taken. So I guess it's not, if you, you want to deflect the blame and say, oh, it's not my fault, then you blame China. And I think it's, it's very, very unfortunate. And by the way, you mentioned Australia. And what's interesting is that Australia, by the way, is the only other country that is speaking publicly about this. And, and I, I did speak to an Australian uh, interviewer just yesterday morning. And I said another very old rule of geopolitics is never pull the tail of a tiger. <laughs> uh, because you will find that at some point in time, the tiger remembers. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think, so I, again, as a friend of Australia, I've been advised caution with them. So on COVID-19, if you ask me what the 191 countries outside US, outside China, and you know, the whole world is affected, everybody. This is the common challenge. No country is immune from COVID-19. 
So the whole world is gen genuinely hoping that US and China will press the pause button just maybe for a year, for a year or two on their geopolitical contest and let's fight COVID-19 all together and let's bring the scientists together and let whenever you discuss COVID-19, what happened, what we should we do, get the politicians out of the room, get the public servants out of the room, just leave scientists in the room. And I'm actually confident that when the scientists talk to each other, they will speak the same language and they'll be able to cooperate with each other. Sure. Do you think there was any politicization of the World Health Organization and the labeling of uh, this disease, which from some public health officials I've spoken with was basically SARS, was effectively SARS, the second iteration of it. Um, and, you know, there have been some thoughts in America that the World Health Organization was pandering uh, to China's desire not to get it labeled as a global pandemic. Any thinking around that? Well, you know, I've actually written a book called The Great Convergence, seven years ago, <laughs> describing how the world has systematically undermined global multilateral organizations like the World Health Organization. And, and you know, in my book, just very, very quickly, uh, the reason why the World Health Organization has been weakened over the years is because the Western countries, sadly, United States and Europe, have led a campaign to, to reduce the reliable funding of the World Health Organization, which in 1971, 62% came from mandatory funding. Today, only 18%, less than one-fifth, comes from mandatory funding. No, you cannot run an organization. Okay, you can only rely on 18% of your funding. The rest of 82 is voluntary. It goes up, goes down, goes up, goes down. You can't rely on that. So that the, 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 the process of weakening the World Health Organization was unwise. And, yeah. and I think to be fair also, uh, uh, and we will find out all this in due course, but you know, the, there are, the, the ratio of Americans working in WHO compared to the ratio of Chinese working in WHO is right. roughly like 10 to 1. Sure. And there are far more Americans. And I, you know, I can tell you as a matter of fact that the Center for Disease Pre Prevention and Control in the United States is in daily touch sure. with the World Health Organization. There is nothing that happens. By the way, global multilateral organizations have no secrets. Sure. <laughs> Their employees come from all, all different countries. So you assume yeah. that anything you do in a global multilateral organization gets leaked every day. Sure. So there's no secrets in the WHO. Okay. So, Kishore, I'm going to, I have a lot of questions I wanted to go down, but I'm seeing all these questions come in and a couple of them when they're on topic, I'm going to interject with the questions from the audience. So here's one that's come in that says, you say Beijing gave every warning that needed to be given at the end of January. We now know China took active steps to corner the global market for medical masks and personal protective equipment. How do you explain that? Was China not playing offense at the world's expense? Uh, well, I, I haven't seen uh, that data and that information. And by the way, the biggest Chinese warning that was given was on 23rd January, which is when they shut down an entire province of 60 million people, sure. uh, Hubei province. And, and they did so on two days before Chinese New Year. Now, closing down a Chinese province two days before Chinese New Year is like closing down America two days before Thanksgiving. In fact, far more people move in China Sure. in Chinese New Year than they do in China in American Thanksgiving. So that was the biggest bang that okay. uh, we could have all heard. 
And I honestly, I do not know the stories about them cutting off masks and, and PPE. And if they did that, was it would be wrong. Uh, I would emphasize that. But I haven't seen the evidence. That there, there's, some, there's some but, new but, but, what, but the most the most important thing I want to emphasize is that whatever happened, we will we will come to that at some point in time. But let us now focus on the future and on solving this problem and on working together. That's the priority today. Sure. Okay. So I want to uh, go back to my questions. We can come back to COVID because I think there's some other questions here. Uh, taking a big picture step back, Kishore, uh, I had the pleasure of uh, spending some time in Dubai. And I, I think you and I were talking previously. I told you about my conversation with uh, Li uh, Zhaoxing, who was the former foreign minister of the People's Republic of China. I was there at an event with him, Dick Cheney, uh, and we were talking. And I had the opportunity to ask him what was his real concern? What were the topics of interest? And he indicated one of the major flashpoints in this relationship between US and China continues to be Taiwan and the US treatment of Taiwan de facto as a separate country, the arming of Taiwan, etc. Do you think this becomes a flashpoint in US-China relations? Uh, uh, absolutely. And I think it's important to understand why Taiwan is such a big issue for the Chinese because I think one, one of the things that my book tries to explain is that all of us, Americans, Chinese and everyone else, we are influenced by our own histories. And the Chinese people have gone through one of the most horrendous periods ever in their history very recently from 1842, the beginning of the Opium War, to 1949, to the creation of the People's Republic of China. They have they suffered for 100 years. The British forced them to take opium. Their territories were seized. Uh, settlements were established in China. The Summer Palace was sacked. And of course, in 1895, uh, when they lost the war to Japan, Japan stole Taiwan away from China. And now, they have actually, the Chinese, have tried to remove all traces of the century of humiliation and all are gone. Hong Kong is back now, part of China. There's only one thing that's remaining from the century of humiliation, which is Taiwan. And here I must emphasize that the fate of Taiwan was settled in 1979 when the United States decided to de-recognize Taiwan and recognize the government in Beijing as the legitimate government of China. And in the statement, it says that the United States acknowledges that the people, that the uh, governments in China and Taiwan agree that China and Taiwan is one country. So, you know, all this was settled uh, 40 years ago. So I, I think, and I think basically, in, and I, I would like to help the people of Taiwan. I've been there many times. In some ways, the best way to help the people of Taiwan is not to politicize the issue. Because the more you politicize the issue, the more China will get anxious, the geopolitical space of Taiwan will shrink. But when you have, like when President Ma Ying-ju was president of Taiwan, and he wasn't pushing for independence, the geopolitical space of Taiwan expanded, expanded and uh, Taiwan was allowed to be an observer in the World Health Organization. Now, I keep referring to geopolitics, and I must say that there are some iron laws of geopolitics. And the Taiwanese people must know that for the 191 countries in the world, except for five or six small states that recognize Taiwan, if they had a choice, they had to make a practical choice, do I recognize China or Taiwan? 
everybody's going to recognize China. That's a reality. And and yeah. if you if there's a small state, you don't recognize these geopolitical realities. You come to grief. Yeah. Do you think there's a timeline on this attempt to reintegrate Taiwan into the mothership, if you will? Um, and and I ask it because I would have thought that they would have uh, been trying to do so to end this century of humiliation, as you describe it, Kishore, uh, sooner rather than later. And I think if you had watched, as I had, and I'm sure you did as well, the politics in Taiwan prior to the Hong Kong protests and then after the Hong Kong protests going into the Taiwan election, you saw a shift. Taiwan was becoming very pro-China, reintegration-oriented in its political perspective. The Hong Kong protests sort of got more momentum, and then the tide politically in Taiwan turned. How much is Beijing paying attention to that? And the reason I ask it is because I do think this could be a flashpoint with the U.S. if there was some reintegration effort in the near term. Well, I, 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 if you ask me to make a bet, uh, I'll take a bet with you uh, that there'll be no military uh, uh, conflict across the Taiwan Straits in the next 10 years. I mean, let's not try and go beyond that, okay? okay. So why, why am I confident that the Chinese will not resort to military means? And here I go, go back to Henry Kissinger's book on China. And he explains at the very beginning of the book how the Chinese play the game of gold and the you know, West plays the game of chess. You go for the quick kill. Yeah. The Chinese basically accumulate advantages. And the Chinese have to ask themselves a very simple question. On whose side is time on? Yeah. 10 years from now. Now, you know, in 1980, China's GNP in purchasing power presidents was one-tenth of the United States. By 2014, it had become bigger. And it'll continue to become bigger and bigger. So countries around the world will finally find, hey, I'm not going to touch Taiwan. China is far too important for me. Sure. So the, the, the logic of history, as long as China is confident that it's going to become stronger and stronger, and I think it is confident, it can be patient. By the same time, the Chinese have also been very clever. You know, if you look at the, the dispute between you, China and Taiwan, it's far more difficult than the one between India and Pakistan, because India and Pakistan are two separate countries. They don't claim to be one country. China and Taiwan are one country. Despite that, China has allowed free trade, free investment, free movement of people within China and Taiwan. And India and Pakistan still don't have normal trade, normal movement of people, and it's amazing. It yeah. shows you how how clever the Chinese can be in playing a game which is slowly and steadily turning the tide in their favor. Sure. And, and that's, what, that's what, again, what my book tries to do and explain that when you're playing the game with the Chinese, you must understand the game that they're playing. Yeah. So, Kishore, I want to talk about that geopolitics of this rivalry uh, a little bit, taking a bigger picture global perspective now. Um, you know, you and I have discussed how this might result in two bifurcated economic ecosystems. Obviously, the technology race that's underway to complement the economic race and currency race, etc., has resulted in a flashpoint on Huawei uh, and 5G telecommunications equipment that may force geopolitical realignment. Um, any thoughts on 
the technology side of the rivalry, specifically as it relates to things like Huawei? Oh, definitely. And I, 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 there's absolutely no question as part of the effort by the United States to try in one way or another to stop the rise of China. Uh, they're going to make sure that China doesn't become technologically superior uh, to the United States. And so they will be, and that's why, that's what this campaign uh, against Huawei is all about, because if all countries around the world choose Chinese 5G technology, then in the eyes of the United States, this will enable China to spy on all the countries in the world. But let me hear as an aside, let me tell you, uh, tell you a slightly funny story. I, I was once, uh, like, just like you are questioning me, I was once questioning Tom Friedman of the New York Times yeah. uh, at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy when I was dean and the question of Huawei came up. And he said, and this is exactly the words uh, uh, Tom Friedman said to me. He says, Kishore, after our session, when you go back home, I want you to go home and Google Snowden and Huawei. And then the story will come up that shows that the CIA was able to spy on Pakistan because it penetrated the Huawei network inside Pakistan. So Huawei was used by the CIA to spy on Pakistan. This is from Tom Friedman, by the way. So it is a very, the reason I tell the story is that it's a very complicated game. And as we know through the revelations, frankly, all countries are spying. And that's, and if you're a small country, you accept that uh, as a reality. And, and, and I say that because if, if, if the United States tries to demonize China, demonize Huawei, you'll find that fewer and fewer countries will join the United States uh, in, in doing so. And what's interesting is that even a country like the United Kingdom, uh, which is, as you know, probably the number one ally of the United States so far, has not banned Huawei. Okay. And that's a signal that maybe the United States should be careful about choosing which other areas is going to force countries to choose. Sure. So, um... One last question for me. I can't help myself because I always enjoy talking to you and it's been a, a fabulous conversation before I turn to the 25 or so questions that I've seen come in here. Um, one of the insights you have in your book, which I found fascinating and I think the American audience should hear, um, is you believe in the long run, Russian interests will align with American interests and that America and Russia could prove to be allies vis-a-vis -vis China, specifically if this rivalry continues. Can you shed a little more light on that and, and share that thinking with this crowd? Well, you know, you know, as a student of geopolitics, one thing you realize is that some things are just constant in geopolitics. And I'll give you one example before I uh, answer your question on Russia. In 1985, okay, at the height of the Cold War, when the Soviet Union and Vietnam were tightly aligned together and United States and China, as you know, were allied against uh, Soviet Union and Vietnam, Vietnam was an enemy of the United States for so long, going back to the Vietnam War. So in 1985, I gave a speech at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York explaining how the U.S. naval base will eventually be moved from Subic Bay in the Philippines to Kamran Bay. Why did I say this? Because Vietnam has been a neighbor of China for 2,000 years. 
Yeah. It's always going to be uncomfortable with China, and it is going to look for allies, and the United States will one day become an ally of Vietnam. And to some extent, my prediction has come true, even if a naval base has not been established there, sure. US naval vessels have, vessels have called and come and be. So in, by following the same logic, you know, Russia's longest border is not with the United States. Russia's longest border is with China. Yeah. And China, which you, you know, in the days of the Soviet Union, if you remember when the Soviet Union began, Soviet Union was here. China was here. The Soviet Union was a lord and master of China. Yeah. Today, you look at Russia and China, whoo! China's economies are, gosh, I don't know how many times the size of Russian economy, 10, 12, 14 times, whatever it is. Amazing. So if you are a Russian strategic planner, I would say none of them worry about American tanks <laughs> coming to Moscow. But they have to worry about the longest border that they have. And so at some point in time, it would be quite natural for Russia to hedge and move towards the West. And I don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but the, 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 the reason why I put that point in is that I would like Washington DC to do a reboot of its entire strategy and to ask yourself, you know, for example, is it wise to alienate Russia if your number one challenger is China? Is it wise to keep on fighting unnecessary wars in the Middle East if your number one challenger is Chinese? So why, why am I saying all that? I'm saying that this, all this reflects the lack of strategic thinking in Washington DC in managing the rise of China. Yeah, yeah. Well, a big lesson to be had there for sure. Uh, so Kishore, I want to turn to some of the many questions that have come in here. There are lots of questions. I've got emails coming, text messages. It's a little overwhelming here to see how many. Uh, but one of the questions has to do with this piece that uh, Kevin Rudd wrote that you and I were discussing in Foreign Affairs. Um, and this is a question that's basically asking, uh, you know, do you agree with him effectively? And for those that haven't read the piece, um, I think it was the coming post uh, coming post COVID anarchy in geopolitics. Uh, mm -hmm. And the suggestion made was that uh, rather than bringing people together as we had hoped, uh, having the U.S. and China de-escalate with common enemy, uh, instead this is uh, going to cause greater friction and uh, sort of an escalation, if you will, towards more uh, geopolitical anarchy, I think is his phrase. So uh, any thoughts on that? Uh, well, you know, I, I read the piece very quickly. And by the way, I must emphasize I have a lot of respect for Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, he speaks Mandarin fluently, I don't. Uh, so I respect his views and I would certainly agree with his pessimism about the future of US-China relations because the pessimism is also what you find in my book uh, about US-China relations, although I try to conclude in an optimistic version. But when, when, when Kevin Rudd says that he expects anarchy in the world, anarchy is a very strong word. Mm -hmm. Anarchy means that everything, the systems break down. Yeah. And I don't see systems breaking down. Maybe I'm naive, possibly. And I think that if you notice that underneath all the rhetoric, there's a lot of genuine, real cooperation going on among countries uh, at a functional level. Mm -hmm. So the system, as far as I know, hasn't broken down. And also, by the way, his article also talks about uh, 
how both uh, President Trump and uh, uh, President Xi Jinping will be regarded uh, badly by history for their contributions and so on and so forth. I, I would say there I have a slightly different point of view because certainly the reason why I quoted Richard Horton in the Lancet is that while the Trump administration has been slow, sadly, in managing the COVID-19 challenge, the, the Chinese response overall has been effective. And if you, if you just want a simple indicator, look at the number of deaths in the population, deaths per million. The figure in Italy is like 500, Spain is 500, Belgium 500, UK 300, US 200. All the East Asian figures, including China, are below 10. There's a remarkable disparity there, and I can't figure that out why, well, why that is happening. It's interesting. It actually ties to another question I've received here, Kishore. So uh, do you think that the Western individualism, the primacy of the individual rights in the West versus the Confucian values and community spirit of Asia, if you will, might that have something to do with what you're hearing here, or you're the data uh, you're Yes, I mean that that would be the answer. If the two, if the, the if two of the countries in East Asia that have done equally well, in fact, very well, are Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, and Australian and New Zealand's deaths uh, per million are the same uh, as e the rest of East Asia, and they are, I believe, me, the, the most individualistic country <laughs> in the world, bar none, is Australia. Okay. Uh, I mean, I love Australia. This is the safest pilot to have is an Australian pilot. Because if the co-pilot sees you, the pilot making mistake, you'll say, shut up and <laughs> stop him right away. Whereas a Korean pilot be very deferential to the yeah. uh, captain. Yeah. So the Australians and New Zealanders are as individualistic. And so there's something happening. And here I want to say that, you know, a lot of my books is about the Asian century that is coming. And I wrote a piece for The Economist in which I say that in a sense, what's happening in COVID-19 may mark the beginning of the Asian century because there's been a gradual transfer of competence in this part of the world. And this part of the world, by the way, I must emphasize, has been learning from the West. Yeah. yeah. I must emphasize this. In fact, we in Asia should send the West a big thank you note for all the gifts that the West has given to us. And that's why we are doing well. And, and how is China fighting COVID-19? Not with traditional Chinese medicine, it's fighting COVID-19 with Western medicine. Sure, sure. So there's, there's, I'm start grouping them in the interest of time. Several questions about India and what this rivalry means for India uh, and the implications of it. Uh, what does it mean uh, for the long-term geostrategic interests of a country like India? Oh, India is going to enter a fantastic geopolitical sweet spot. Really, India is going to become the most caught country in the world, again, for, again, for a simple rule of geopolitics. As you know, in the Cold War, initially China was tied to Soviet Union as part of the Communist International. The United States was opposed to both. And probably the greatest piece of geopolitical genius that was carried out in the Cold War was the way that Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger managed to, to persuade China to join the United States against the Soviet Union. That will go down as one of the biggest diplomatic coups in history. And today, when the United States is looking for partners to balance 
China, the biggest possible partner they could find is India because only one country will have a population as big as China and that is India. And at the same time, of course, for the same reason, China is also going to be courting India. And it's important to emphasize the fact that so people know if there are two leaders in this world who have spent time talking to each other face to face before COVID-19 came along, uh, the two leaders who have spent most amount of time, in fact, two, three days talking to each other, have been Xi Jinping of China and Prime Minister Modi of India. So India is going to be courted by everybody. So there's a, there's a tremendous window of geopolitical opportunity for India. The only question is whether India will be shrewd enough, canny enough to take full advantage of it. Got it. Um, there's a couple comments, uh, Kishore, coming in about uh, the benefits that China has obtained over the last 40 years of increasing global trade, etc., in large part have been provided by sea lanes of navigation that have been secured through U.S. military, U.S. Navy uh, operations. Um, you know, to what extent do you think a sort of retrenchment, if you will, of the U.S. Navy from places perhaps like the South China Sea, which could be a flashpoint, uh, might imperil that freedom of navigation? Well, I think the, you're absolutely right. One of the, uh, I, I wrote this in my, one of my previous books, one of the great paradoxes of our time is that the U.S. Navy, you're right, is keeping international sea lanes free. And today, uh, since China does far more trade with the rest of the world than the United States does, the U.S. Navy is keeping sea lanes free for Chinese products to travel freely across the world. This is a paradox of our time. But if the U.S. Navy retreats, I don't think it will, because I think the U.S. at the end of the day still has great global interests. Uh, the Chinese have an even greater interest in maintaining freedom of navigation across oceans. And I think by now, you know, there's some things that get wired into you. And what has become wired into the international community is that freedom of navigation is a global public good. Yeah. And every country now in the world benefits from it. So I don't see any major disruption to that global public good. Although I must say, I, I do encourage my American friends by saying that if you want to preserve this global public good, if you want to preserve freedom of navigation, the time has come for the United States to do what every Secretary of State in the United States advised the United States to do, which is to ratify the Law of the Sea Convention, which, by the way, enshrines freedom of navigation. Raises different issues. This is the Law of the Sea Convention, because if you have a, uh, a, a, I don't want to sound political in the statement, but if you have a, um, a bunch of sand that you put in the sea and you call it an island, uh, well, then if that is in fact an island, then you get the territorial waters, etc. And so uh, I think it creates some complications for sure. But um, let, let me just, just very quickly, and the law of the sea convention doesn't allow that. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you claim territory after the convention, you're not allowed to expand an island. You're not allowed to. You can't. Under the law, law of the sea convention is very clear. Can't create Very territory. clear on that. You cannot, you cannot. Yep. If yep. the reef is a reef, it's not an island. Yep. Yep. But if it's militarized and it has, so anyway, oh, yeah. other people have content, right? There's issues there. So let's not, let's not get stuck on that. One of the other topics that's come up here is, uh, is more of a, a sort of take a big picture step back and take the lessons you've had. But you know, this, this person says the recurring theme in your book would be the necessity of challenging assumptions. 
that undergird systems and structures in the geopolitical sphere. What do you think some of the assumptions are that China's making or that America's making that are not valid? I mean, we talked a little bit about the American assumptions, but maybe the Chinese assumptions. Well, I think the, the, the Chinese actually, the first assumption that the Chinese made was that if they keep growing and focus on economic growth and not engage in military adventures, and as you know, the Chinese have not fought a major, have not fought a war in 40 years, have not fired a bullet across their borders in 30 years, and they thought they could continue to rise peacefully and the world would accept them. And I think the rising level of concern over China around the world is something that the Chinese government, I think, did not anticipate at all. And now the Chinese government has got to deal with a world where, it's, why did I must emphasize, it's not just the United States that is uncomfortable about the rise of China. I think uh, certainly the neighbors of China, like Japan, uh, India and uh, Australia are also uncomfortable with how strong and powerful uh, yeah. China has become and that's how the Quad has been set up. So clearly China's rise has created a bigger backlash than anything that the uh, Chinese leaders anticipated. Uh, in the case of the United States, I think the, the biggest assumption that United States has made, which I think is a dangerous one, is that you know, we, we defeated the Imperial Germany in World War One. We won World War II handsomely. We defeated the Soviet Union without firing a shot. We sh shoved off the Japanese challenge when people say Japan had become number one. America can only win. It can never lose. Yeah. And that's why, the, that's why the title of my book is Subversive, because behind the question, has China won, lurks another question, which is, can America lose? And of course, the idea that can America lose is inconceivable. Now, one, one of the basic lessons of strategy, strategic thinking is, you must always think the unthinkable. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, I mean, the, the grand strategy angle here um, is, is critical. And one of the things I'd love to, as we start to wrap this up, as we run out of time, uh, Kishore, is, you know, what advice would you give if you were advising uh, the American administration? Sort of what is the right approach to interacting with China, understanding some of these constraints? Well, I actually would go back to the pieces of advice that George Cannon gave to uh, his fellow Americans when America launched its Cold War against the Soviet Union. And he gave four pieces of advice. He says, number one, the success of the American in the Cold War would depend at the end of the day on the domestic spiritual vitality of the country. And yeah. as you know, America has lost their spiritual vitality because the average income, the bottom 50% has gone down. Yeah. Number two, he said, cultivate friends and allies. Number three, he said, um, don't insult the Soviet Union. Because at some point in time, you have to deal with the Soviet Union. And his fourth point was be humble. So I would say these are pieces of advice that and this, what which George Cannon gave to his yeah. fellow Americans remain valid in 20, as valid in 2020 as they did in 1949 when he said so. Sure. So I find it interesting, Kishore, that you bring up George Cannon because that was a fundamental piece that set a large portion of grand strategy for America and the Cold War. But the underlying premise of it was containment. 
So it sounds like you would be agreeing then that America should be working on containing China. No, well, you see, that is, this, is, this is a key point. If George Cannon were alive, he would understand this is a very different uh, competitor because the Soviet Union hardly did any trade uh, with the rest of the world, hardly. Yeah. And certainly with his neighbors. Whereas today, China does far more trade. And the Chinese, by the way, have actually launched a preemptive strike against a containment strategy 20 years ago by opening up the Chinese economy in a massive way to all its neighbors. So the Chinese, the real point I'm trying to make to you is that Chinese are always thinking two, three steps ahead. Yeah, I do think, I, I tend to agree with your statement there. I remember listening in January 2017 to Xi Jinping's speech in Davos and uh, comparing it to the, the new rhetoric of the new American president. The new American president was saying, make America first. And Xi Jinping, leader of communist China, was talking about free trade, globalization, and liberalization of economic activity. So... Um, yeah, very, very interesting. So, Kishore, I want to wrap up with uh, the two, que- a couple of questions that have popped up here that I think are relevant. First of all, uh, there, there are a couple of people asking uh, that uh, they would love to have you, se- they've sent it here in the chat and send it to you later. Um, there is this story that came out about the PPE and mask and how China was hoovering them up at the time. They want to, if it's possible to get a response from you later, that would be great. Uh, but this last question, I think, is really interesting. Um, and it's an interpretation that uh, maybe you'll take issue with, but the, the statement is, in, the, in your book, you explained how and why de facto you were preparing Singapore to fall out of the American orbit and towards the Chinese orbit if you were forced to choose. If sort of Singapore was forced to choose, there's a very obvious choice. What could the U.S. do that would change your mind? If you were running Singapore, what, what could you well, do? I would certainly not uh, advise Singapore to join the Chinese orbit. Certainly not. And, and, and in fact, from the point of view of Singapore, what Singapore would like to see is the geopolitical contest go down, rush it down, so that we can continue to trade and live with both countries. And that, I think, is not just the attitude of Singapore. You know, I have a whole chapter about how the 6 billion people in the world who live outside the United States and China and how they want to see the world evolve. And they're, not, they're neither betting on the United States, except of course the Allies, betting on the United States or China. They, they actually want to see a world where they can continue to grow their countries and continue to improve the livelihood of their people and work with both US uh, and China to achieve this. So they don't want to be caught in a zero-sum contest between these two powers. And that, that is the big message I'm trying to convey in the book. And I think America can retain many, many friends around the world. And I also say in the book that there are huge reservoirs of goodwill towards America in Southeast Asia that Americans are not aware of. Yeah. They haven't been there. So there are huge reservoirs of goodwill. So it is a much more complex story than the black and white interpretations that sometimes come up uh, in these sort of descriptions of the book. Sure. So I want to end on a positive note, Kishore, as I always like to do, because in this time of chaos and uncertainty and financial markets and currency dynamics and trade war and currency war and COVID and lockdown, et cetera, uh, 
what what message can you leave us with that gives us some hope of uh, a future that is bright, optimistic, and doesn't lead towards World War III? Well, I think, you know what, uh, we have seen a greater improvement in the human condition over the last 30, 40 years than we have seen in 3,000 years or so. And I would, I was born and brought up in a third world country and I was put in a special feeding program when I was six years old and uh, my, my house had no flush toilet. We all live in a one room house. There were gangsters killing each other on our doorsteps. And I lived in that third world environment. And now I live in a much more comfortable world. So the journey that I have personally traveled from third world to first world is the journey that frankly, all 7.5 billion of us can travel in the next 30 to 40 years. That's why I'm optimistic. Good. Well, Kishore, thank you so much for your time. This was a real pleasure. I, I have several dozen unanswered questions, but I guess that's a, that's a good thing. For those that want answers, please do purchase uh, Kishore's book. I will tell you, having read it now almost twice in the last two weeks, uh, it is definitely worth reading. It is insightful. It puts a lot of these dynamics in context and provides nice historical uh, background material to understand what may be really driving these dynamics. But uh, Kishore, I can't thank you enough. Thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. And everyone, there will be a recording uh, that will be uh, posted probably later today if you'd like to review some of the, the great insights we've received here. So, um, and otherwise, uh, thank you everyone and stay safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. For more information, please do visit Dr. Manchramani's website at www.manshamani.com or follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to purchase his book, Think for Yourself, which is available for pre-order on Amazon.